We're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. We've made it to the second chapter in the Gospel of John. Uh, As we go through the Gospel of John, there will be some chapters that are like that, like chapter 1, that take us four or five weeks to get through. There'll be other chapters that we actually cover in one week. And so um, the pace is going to change as we go through uh, the Gospel. Uh, But we have made it to 2. So I want to give you some framework for the Gospel of John. So the way we are working through this book of the Bible is is really helpful for a number of reasons. One, it allows us to just kind of saturate in the text, to get things that we otherwise might have missed had we just skimmed through it. Or if we had been in this book this week and in Romans next week and the Old Testament next week, not that those aren't decent ways to study the Bible, but when you slow down and go verse by verse, it allows you to see things that you didn't see before. And so for me, this has been really uh, just a helpful um, sermon series so far. One of the things I've learned about the Gospel of John is just the framework of it that I hadn't seen before. And so here's the basic framework of the Gospel of John. Uh, Chapter one is about the eyewitness accounts and the public testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. Now we say that and we look back over the last five weeks, you go, okay, that makes sense because it begins with the first 18 verses, the Gospel writers account that Jesus is the Messiah. After verse 18, starting in verse 19, we get John the Baptist, his public announcement and witness and testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, what what happens right after that? Well, two of his disciples begin to follow Jesus, right? And we were introduced to uh, Peter and Andrew and last week, Philip and Nathaniel. And these four disciples make a public declaration and testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. So all that's in chapter one. So now what John's going to do in chapters 2 through 12 is he's going to capture and summarize the highlights from his perspective of the public ministry of Jesus. And what he's going to do is he's going to record for us eight miracles that he is going to refer to as signs. Why, Why does he use the word signs? Because John, the gospel writer, believes these eight signs validate chapter one, this public testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. So as you read these miracles, what John is doing is he wants you to know that without a doubt, this is the Messiah. What John the Baptist declares is true. What what, uh, Peter and and Andrew declare is true. What Philip and Nathaniel declare is true. Jesus is the Messiah. Well, what's cool is what happens after that is in chapters 13 through 17, it actually moves into kind of a season of private ministry between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. And then after that, uh, the remaining chapters, 18 to 21, essentially record the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so there's the framework of the gospel. And when we, we know that, it helps us then understand these smaller stories that are in the Bible. Well, another reason, and maybe the final reason why I enjoy preaching and teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is that it forces us, in a way, to teach or preach parts of the Bible that we otherwise might have skipped over because we, not because we didn't like it, we just, in my case, perceived that there wasn't a whole lot there. And so today we're looking at this, this account of Jesus turning water into wine. It is the first sign of the eight signs that John records. And it's different, though, from his other miracles because in this particular occasion, nobody is hurting. Nobody is blind. Nobody has leprosy. Nobody is dead and needing to be raised from the dead. I mean, essentially, a party is just kind of losing its fizzle, right? They, they run out of wine, and they need some more wine. And so for me, as I approach this, this text, I, I ask God, like, God, show me what's in here. Why is this the first one that John records? What's buried? What is hidden in this small narrative for us to see? And so I'm excited because there's a lot here. 
If, you've, if you want to take notes, the sermon notes in the seat back in front of you have got seven fill-in-the-blanks this morning. And so here's just a little uh, setup for this particular sermon. So we know from chapter one, if you go back to verses 14 through 16, you're going to really see that the thesis statement of the whole book. This is John's summary of why he's even writing. He talks about this word that has become flesh. And then because the word became flesh, we've seen his glory. And because we have seen his glory, we have received grace upon grace. And so now all the stories that John is going to lay out for us are going to show how the word has become flesh. And, and because the word became flesh, we've seen his glory. And when we see his glory, something happens. We receive grace upon grace. And we're going to see that in this story as well. We know that these eight signs are not the only eight signs that Jesus offered. These are not the only eight miracles that Jesus performed. These just happen to be the eight that John said, these are the ones that will validate for you, or my hope is that these will validate for you that he is the Messiah and that you will believe that too. And so we're gonna start in chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so this is what we would call the setup. This tells us some information we need to know before we get into the meat of the story. So here's the setup. It's the third day. So more than likely, this is the third day after uh, the account with, um, with Philip and Nathaniel. That's where we left off last week. Philip and Nathaniel, remember? Uh, one goes to the other and says, hey, you gotta, we found the Messiah. You've got to come see him. And he comes and he's like, hey, you're the Messiah. And, and Jesus speaks to him and he says, how did you know that about me? He said, hey, before you even came, you were hanging out under a fig tree. Remember that story from last week? Okay, now we're three days past that. So this is the third day. Uh, not only that, there was a wedding that was happening in Cana. So Cana was a real small village outside of Nazareth. And it probably only, uh, probably only had around two to three dozen people living in this village. You've ever been to like a small village, like a, maybe a third world country that still operates in a small village kind of community, very tight knit. Matter of fact, most of the people were related to one another. In a, in a village like this, you probably only had two, maybe three families that made up the entire population. Well, Nazareth wasn't much bigger. We've talked about that. It was a little podunk, nobody town. Well, about 500 people lived in Nazareth at this time. Why is that important? Well, here's why that's important. If you've ever been a part of a small community, a small rural community, when something like a wedding happens, everybody knows about it. And in this culture, it was a big deal. Like they made, they made weddings into such a big deal that it kind of shut everything down for several days and everybody traveled from around the countryside to come be a part of this. Everybody knew each other and everybody was there. So Jesus's mom was there. Of course, Jesus was also invited. Now, we don't know it yet, but Jesus's mom is gonna have a small piece of this unfolding narrative too. So John wants you to know, hey, among the people who are there, don't forget, Mary was there, Jesus's mother. So moving forward into verse three, here's the problem. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is, this is an interesting unfolding of, of dialogue, isn't it? Uh, to begin with, in English, it almost sounds like Jesus just disrespected his mom. 
Now, he did something really significant here, and we're going to talk about it, but it wasn't that he necessarily disrespected his mom. Like, if my boys call my wife woman, we got a problem in the house. See you guys in my bedroom. We don't call mom woman. You can call her ma'am, call her mom, mommy. You can even call her mother if you have a polite tone of voice. We don't call her woman. Well, in this particular cultural setting, this was the equivalent of ma'am. So it wasn't disrespectful, but it still wasn't mom. And that's key here. We're going to see why that's important. So he wasn't referring to his mom as mom. He simply referred to her as ma'am. Look at what he said. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Now, in this context, it's hard to see, but that phrase um, used in the Gospel of John and other biblical uh, accounts is a phrase that refers to, in a sense, a spiritual difference. Now, it's oftentimes used by demons when they encounter Jesus and they say something like, hey, what do you have to do with us? Like, what do you want to have to do with us? Like, stay out of our spiritual business. You stay over there. We'll stay over here. Stay out of our spiritual business. And so it's used by demons. It's used in this account by Jesus to refer being in two different places, spiritually speaking. You tracking with that? Okay, so, so now, now we're beginning to understand Jesus is actually seeing things different from how Mary is seeing them, which is similar to what we've been talking about in this series, isn't it? Like the disciples, they're looking at Jesus like, hey, where do you live? It's like, it's going to take a while for me to show you where I live. But for now, just come follow me and come and see. Right? Because the disciples were seeing things on the ground level. Jesus was seeing from a heavenly perspective. That same thing is happening here. Jesus is seeing this wedding. He is seeing this circumstance with different eyes than Mary is seeing them. Mary is just realizing, hey, we're out of wine. That's going to embarrass the family that's hosting this thing. Not only that, this thing's going to end early. And so she comes to Jesus, hey, can you do anything to help to fix this thing? Now, Jesus, again, in his response, begins to indicate, hey, we're looking at this situation differently. He does say something here that's important. My hour has not yet come. That's a phrase he'll use over and over in the Gospel of John. And it always refers to his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, so he's saying that that time has not yet come. The time to be exalted as the risen Savior has not yet come. But then we see this interesting kind of change here whenever she, Mary, his mother, says to the servants, do what he tells you. It's such a simple, subtle phrase, but do you hear the submission in that? Do you hear the heart change in Mary? She's talking with her son. Hey, can you come fix the problem? Essentially, he says to her, hey, you don't, you're not even looking at the problem the right way. My hour has not yet come. So now, rather than being mom in the scenario, she steps back to let Jesus take the stage and says what? Hey, do whatever he says. And she exalts him with her submission to Christ. What we see through uh, Mary's example and you're going to see this in other gospel accounts as well. We see it in the gospel of Luke. I don't know if you remember the story where Jesus goes missing when he's 12. I have a 12-year-old. Uh, if he goes missing for a little while, I'm okay. He can handle himself. But after 30 minutes to an hour, like, okay, we need to know where he's at, right? And so Jesus goes missing, and Mary and Joseph go looking for Jesus, and they find him. Where is he at? He's at the temple, right? <laughs> he's at church, Right? He's not down the street uh, in the, getting into mischief with his friends. He's actually at the temple. And here's the account of that. 
in Luke 2.48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my, listen to this, father's house? Well, who was he talking to? Mom and dad. What was he saying? Saying, listen, I mean no disrespect, but didn't you know that I have a heavenly father and I would be about his will? See, I think this is what's happening, unfolding here for Jesus. Before he performs this miracle, he's making this declaration to his mother. Listen, I'm here to do my father in heaven's will, not yours. I mean no disrespect, but my mission here on earth is not to do the will of the people, but to do the will of my father who is in heaven. He says this multiple times in the Gospel of John. Just one example, 519 says this, that Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. That's my mission. I look to God in heaven, he shows me what to do, and then I do it. So in this particular setting, if my father in heaven doesn't show me turning water into wine, I'm not doing it. I'm here to do his will, not your will. And so... We see a couple of things already here about the glory of Christ. The first thing is this, and if you're taking notes, you want to fill this blank in. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of faith. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of faith. Jesus essentially saying to his mother, you will be related to me by faith, not by family. My ties to you right, are not familial in the sense that you're my mom and I'm your son, But instead, what you're gonna see, mother, is that over time, as my hour comes, I'm gonna be your savior. And we can already begin to see Mary's heart turn, can't we? I'm not sure she's fully there yet, but she's already beginning to realize, okay, I need to submit to this one, right? He who I once saw as simply just my son, right, is set apart as the son of God. And so we see that Jesus' kingdom will be a kingdom of faith, That's really good news for us, folks. 21st century American inhabitants, you're Gentiles, most of you. Most of us, we're Gentiles. We're outsiders. We aren't children of Abraham by birth. Some of you, maybe you come from a long lineage of faith, and that's helpful, but that doesn't save you. Your relationship to Jesus will be based on your faith not your family ties. This goes for the mother of Jesus, it goes for us. And so Jesus' kingdom will be a kingdom of faith. And not only that, the second thing we see is that Jesus came to do the will of his heavenly father. Not the will of man, not the will of his earthly parents. Now that, that should play into the way we pray, shouldn't it? Jesus has not come to do our will, so we should seek to pray for the kinds of things that Jesus seeks to do. Are you with me on that? It's somewhat counterproductive to pray for things that Jesus says, I'm not gonna do that. I could give you some examples, but they'd be extreme. But my main point is this, that as we pray, and think about how Jesus prayed, how did he pray? Our Father who art in heaven, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. You see how he teaches us to pray that way? 
When he's in the garden, he prays in submission to his father. If it's possible, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not what I will, but what your will be done. And so as Christ's followers, we should desire to know the will of God, and then we should seek to pray it. This is what Jesus is saying to his mom. I'm, I'm about doing his business, what I see him doing, what, what, I, what his will is. That's the will I'm here to complete. Now, let's move on into verse 6 through 11. This is the bulk of the story now. So now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to them, said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, the, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this is the first sign, first of his signs. Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. So let me just kind of set the scene up. So you've got a couple of other characters. You've got the master of the feast. Essentially, this is like the head waiter. This is the one who the bridegroom has hired to make sure the party goes well. Because the bridegroom doesn't want to have to worry about, do, do we have enough wine? Do we have enough food? Is everybody having a good time? Right, so he, he appoints somebody to be in charge. That's the master of the feast. This person is responsible for making sure that everything goes well. Not just for the, for the bride and the bridegroom, but for all the participants in the party. Now, what would typically happen at party or wedding is that they would serve the best wine first to impress, and then once everybody had had enough to where they were beginning to get a little bit tipsy and they didn't notice quite so much the quality of the wine, then they would begin to serve the lesser quality wine and the hope was nobody would notice and everybody would go home and all that they would remember is so-and-so threw a great party, okay? And so that's what's happening in this dialogue. So, so Jesus is gonna turn the water into wine. Servants bring it to the master of the feast. He tastes it and he's like, whoa, why didn't we serve this first? Where did this come from? So he goes directly to the bridegroom and is like, hey, help me understand something. Why did you give me the bad wine first and you saved all this good wine for the end? Now let's walk through what we see here in this part of the story. So to begin with, we have these six stone jars. What I want you to see is that, first of all, Jesus selected them, okay? So Jesus didn't just say, hey guys, go see if you can find something that holds water. He intentionally selected these stone jars. He could have used old wineskins or empty wineskins. He could say, hey, go grab some wineskins and fill them with water. But instead, right, we see Jesus intentionally saying, I want these. Go fill these jars up with water. So what was it about these jars? It's actually quite strange that he chose these jars. These were not vessels used for drinking water. The text tells us what? These things were used for spiritual cleansing. These were like jars used in worship. These were jars that you would have withheld, right, to, to put special water in, clean water in, and use that in your worship, right, to cleanse the sins of the people. 
Instead of Jesus saying, hey, go grab some wineskins or just go grab something that you can put water in, he said, hey, go grab those six jars that are set aside for purification and then fill them how much? To the brim. So each one holds what, 20 to 30 gallons? That's what, 150 to 180? I'm doing my math, 120 to 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water in a culture, in a city, in a village that doesn't have running tap water. So a lot of effort is gone. They're carrying these stone jars. They're not lightweight. So I'm sure they're thinking, why are we doing this? Like wineskins, they're made out of leather. They're empty. They're super lightweight. Why are we doing this? But yet Jesus is standing. He's specifically saying, go grab those jars and fill them with water. Now, what I believe Jesus is displaying here is for the cultural context would have been clear to see. Because see, these six jars for the people present at this party would have associated them simply with worship and cleansing. What they, what they hoped to be a miraculous movement of God to cleanse them from them, their sins. So think about how often these jars have probably been used, probably for maybe even hundreds of years in this practice of cleansing. Yet they never did anything to cleanse any one of their sins. And now here Jesus is gonna perform this miracle, right? Displaying his power not just over water and wine, but his power over cleansing itself. It's a beautiful image we begin to see here. As Jesus performs his first miracle, it seems like he has his last miracle in mind. Doesn't it? Like he even said that to Mary, my hour has not yet come, meaning I'm thinking about the death and the resurrection. And we know that with the death and resurrection, he illustrates that with what? With wine. Right? He says, here, drink this. This will symbolize my blood of the new covenant which will be his final recorded miracle on earth. And so Jesus is displaying here something really powerful. If you're keeping up with the notes, Jesus has authority over our spiritual cleansing. You know, I don't think that they fully got it though. I don't wanna mislead you here. Whoa, that's a sign. So, as a participant in, the party, a participant in the party, Jesus takes something you previously used in worship and he performs this miracle. I don't fully think they saw the wine and went, oh, that represents your blood. I get it now. I don't think that at all. But what they did see is this one obviously has power over these things, right? These symbolic things that we had previously gone to to find power. Now we see somebody who has power over these things. You with me? They clearly saw that. And so we do see Number three, Jesus' authority over our spiritual cleansing here. Now, the next thing I want you to see too is <laughs> just the sheer quantity. Doesn't it seem like John wants you to realize how much wine he made? Doesn't he go out of the way to say there were six jars and oh, by the way, each one held this much and oh, by the way, he filled them to the brim? Okay, so 120 to 180 gallons of wine. At the beginning of the party, that probably would have been too much wine. At the end of the party, that's way more than the people need, right? Are you with me? Like, that's a lot of wine, right? And so in this, what we're gonna see is continually with all of the signs and the miracles of Jesus, like even like feeding of the 5,000, isn't it awesome that there was food left over, right? So even in this case, he didn't make what was just enough. He went over and Above And every time we see Jesus do that, it is an illustration of his immeasurable grace. So remember what we talked about earlier. What's the thesis of this gospel? The word became flesh. We saw his glory. And on seeing his glory, we received what? Grace upon grace. 
We talked about that. Not just enough grace, but more than enough grace. Do you see Jesus that way, personally? If you're here today and you're a Christian, you've asked him for forgiveness. Do you see his forgiveness as just enough? Almost enough? Maybe enough? Just what you need to get you past the finish line and into heaven? Or do you see Jesus as rich in grace, abundantly pouring out and lavishing with you with grace? And when you ask him for grace, he does far more than you could have ever expected or imagined. We see that in this story. He's going way beyond, isn't he? Way beyond what was asked for, what was needed as he turns this water into wine. Jesus pours out immeasurable grace. Now, the next thing I want to look at with you is this master of the feast. I talked about this earlier. He was the one responsible for throwing the party, making sure everything went well. If things didn't go well, it was on his head. Now, first glance, I read through the story. I'm like, why is Jesus stepping in to rescue this guy? Because whose fault is it that they ran out of wine? It's his. Like if Jesus doesn't step in, this party is a dud and master of the feast won't be asked to be master of the feast anymore. Are you with me? He may not even receive his compensation if that's what was promised to him by the bridegroom. You let the party run out of wine? Like that's about like letting the party run out of food or music or Right, the thing that, that, that kind of is driving our social time here. And, and so really Jesus is stepping in in a way and he's kind of rescuing this guy. But I think actually Jesus is displaying something far more powerful than that. As Jesus, number five, supplies more than what is needed when we turn to him, then number six, Jesus displays to us here that he is the true master of the feast. Think about that. You have this guy who... For all the preparation and planning that he did, he couldn't pull it off. And so Jesus steps in, not to rescue him, but to display what? I'm actually the only one who can pull things off here. I'll display this in the simple illustration of a wedding, but this is gonna transcend far beyond weddings. This is gonna apply to your family life. Dads, I'm the only one who can truly step in and rescue and save your family. This is gonna be for your career. I'm the only one who can truly step in here. Right, and we build these lives, these little small kingdoms that are kind of hinging on us, don't we? And we tell ourselves, if I don't do it, nobody will. Now, in a practical sense, that might be true at your job, but in a spiritual sense, Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? When you run out of those options, I'm gonna be the one who steps in as the master of the feast, the head of your household, the master of your career, the master of your identity, so Jesus steps in in this situation to display his glory as the master of the feast. And we know he is preparing a much bigger feast, right? Did you know there's a wedding coming? Who's the bridegroom? Jesus is. Who's the bride? We are, his church. You know that feast is awaiting us, right? Think about that, all the promises that Jesus left us with. Think about the simple act of communion. When Jesus said to the disciples, hey guys, I'm not gonna drink this again. What was he pointing to? A cup of wine? I'm not gonna drink this again until I drink it new with you. Where? In my Father's kingdom. At this final feast that I am preparing for you. And so we look back on this account and we see Jesus as the master of the feast. Now, I wanna end with just the simple symbolism of water to wine. 
right? Jesus could have done a number of other things here, but his choice was to change water into wine. Why water to wine? Why not just bring me some empty vessels and I'll fill them up with wine? Why do we need to start with water so that we can end with not just wine, but like really good wine? You think about that? Like, this wasn't just mediocre wine. He goes from water, has no flavor, very little nutritional value outside of just hydration, and turns it into something not mediocre, but something excellent. Isn't this the theme of what Jesus does every time he works? He takes that which is not, that which is nothing, and he doesn't just turn it into something, but he turns it into something amazing. Like, this is the theme of what Jesus does. Let me just kind of walk through this with you. So Jesus takes something that is almost nothing and makes it into something significant and great. So in this, what I believe we're seeing is a living parable of our own salvation. We're seeing an image of who we are before Christ. Water, right? Just almost nothing. We're seeing this beautiful living parable, this image of who we were before Christ, and now we're seeing what we've been transformed into. And when you think about that, listen, Christ follower, you have no way to measure that but to say that Jesus poured out grace upon grace to get you there. So we talked about this last week. I want to end in the same place. All these miracles and signs are actually just illustrations of the greatest miracle that Jesus has come to perform. The greatest miracle that Jesus performs is when he takes sinners and he turns them into saints. Takes what is nothing and turns it into something extravagant and amazing. Whoa, that's you. That's you. He doesn't just take dirty water and make it clean water. He could have done that here. He doesn't just take you and kind of fix you up and send you back on your way until you mess up again, does he? He's not, he's not in the fixer-upper business. He's in the I make all things new business. I make all things better business. I take that which is nothing and make it into something. Last blank on your notes, Jesus turns sinners into saints. Or you can say it this way, he turns orphans into legitimate children. However you want to think of it. And in this first miracle recorded, this sign that Jesus is the Messiah, we begin to see what? His glory. Just radiating out of the story, don't we? In his interaction with Mary, in the way he steps in, not to do the will of man, but to do the will of God, to do far more than what is asked for or expected or needed, to go above and beyond to display his power and his goodness towards us. And so that final verse we read, let's read it again. This, this is verse 11, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and did what? Manifested his glory. Remember what we talked about? The thesis of this whole book is what? The word became flesh. He revealed and we've seen his glory. And upon seeing his glory, we have received what? Grace upon grace. Well, look at what happens here. He manifested his glory. So think about that for just a minute. So that, that, that impacts the way we approach this story, doesn't it? John is saying, read this story and look for his glory. Right? That's what he's saying, clearly. Read the story and look for his glory. 
This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And look at this. And his disciples believed in him. That's the whole point of Jesus turning water into wine. It's his whole point. It had nothing to do with saving the party or being nice to the people or performing a little side magic show just to impress people, show people what he could do, what was possible. No, Jesus steps into this narrative, not according to the, to the will of Mary, but according to the will of his father to do what? To show his glory. If I'm gonna be involved in this, God is gonna be glorified and you're gonna see me. That kind of changes the way we read the story, doesn't it? It does for me. It changes the story for me. This is about Jesus revealing his glory. Now, here's why I'm saying that. Because that should change the way we see our own stories. Whatever you've witnessed maybe in your life Jesus do, think about it this way. Maybe he stepped in and saved your marriage. It may be present here in this room. Somebody here, you're like, man, if he had not stepped in, my marriage would have been done a long time ago. So Jesus didn't step into your marriage solely for the sake of saving your marriage. What? Yeah, he stepped into it to reveal his glory. See the difference? Like to do far more than you asked for or expected. Maybe you've prayed for something else and you've seen God work in a miraculous way. However, he's responded to your prayers. It wasn't simply to do your will. He doesn't operate that way, does he? He operates according to whose will? His Father in heaven. So when we pray, God responds. He steps into our story, our situation, not just to fix it or to make it work out how we want it, but listen, every time to reveal his glory to you. So, right, so as we pray, what are we looking for? Are we looking for the outcome we ask for or are we looking for the glory of Christ? Doesn't that change the way we see our own stories? I wanna leave you with that today to think about maybe you're praying for something right now, like you're crying out for answers, direction, intervention, healing, I don't know. Maybe you're crying out and you're praying consistently for something. And so maybe what God is showing you today is, listen, I don't operate according to your will, right? I operate according to my will. And as I step into what you're asking me to step into, I don't want you to look for the outcome that you're asking for. I want you to look for my glory. And sometimes that happens in him answering the way we're praying, right? But sometimes he doesn't heal the cancer, Sometimes he heals it. What does he do when, we heal, when he heals the cancer? We give him the what? The glory. Well, what happens when he doesn't heal it? We look for God's glory, right? We look for God's glory in the suffering. We look for God's glory in whatever he's doing in our lives. And so not only does this change the way we see this story of water into wine, but it changes the way we see our own stories. So I want to leave you with this today and my simple prayer for us today is that we would grow in our ability to see the manifested glory of Jesus in everyday situations, right? This is just an everyday situation, right? It's not a blind man trying to receive sight, that we would begin to look for the manifested glory of Jesus in everyday situations for this end, that we might believe, that we might believe in Jesus. And that's my prayer for us as we wrap up today. Worship team's coming up and our prayer partners are coming forward and they would be honored to pray with you about anything going on in your life. Um, even if you've come and talked to them about something before and prayed about it, if it's still weighing on your heart, come, come grab them and pray again. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Father, thank you for 
this first recorded miracle of Jesus, and we'll be honest, God, or I'll be honest, it is so easy for me to skip past this story just assuming there's not a whole lot there. But the Bible clearly tells us that what is embedded in this story is the revealed glory of Jesus, so we know it matters. Father, thank you for speaking to us today out of this story of Jesus turning water into wine. We know that it has very little to do with Jesus saving the day or Jesus showing off his power, but we know that it has everything to do with Jesus revealing his glory. God, my hope for us as a church is that we could grow in our awareness and our, even our seeking and our, our looking for the glory of Christ in what we would maybe consider everyday mundane situations. Help us, God, when the alarm clock goes off tomorrow to begin our pursuit of looking for the manifested glory of Christ. Help us at the end of our day tomorrow to lay our head on the pillow and just think back through the day looking for the manifestation of the glory of Christ. Father, in this story, we see how your grace upon grace unfolds to us, that you would do far more than we could ever ask for or imagine. God, I pray anybody here today that does not know you personally would take that step of faith, grab a prayer partner, make this declaration that you truly are the Son of God, the risen Christ, and find salvation in your name. Jesus, we pray this in your precious and your holy name.